Good morning, and <clears throat> greet you in Jesus' name, and welcome you to this time of our service. So this morning, I would like to engage your thoughts. That is, if this fan doesn't blow my Bible away. Engage your thoughts a bit um, on why you might be here this morning. And what I mean by that is, um, I don't know how many of you have ever given consideration as to why we as Christians observe Sunday as the day of rest in the week versus the Sabbath day. Does anybody, does anybody know why or how that came to be? Anybody? Could you give a decent explanation? All right. Got at least one taker. You want to take over, Kenny? All right. The reason my mind went in this direction is several months ago I was to my um, accountant, which happens to be a Seventh-day Adventist, very nice, very nice man, um, learned to know him somewhat well through the years. I don't know well, but it's not uncommon for us to, uh, when we're done with uh, things you talk about accountants with, about, um, to kind of kick back and go off the clock and, and um, talk about other things. And he has a... He has a bit of concern for me because I don't observe the Sabbath day. And he was, he told me so. He didn't really say he had a concern, but he did say this. He said, for all the things you people have right, I can't believe you don't have that one right. He said, that's one that I'm really surprised you didn't get right. And I'll be honest, I wasn't prepared to engage in a discussion on it because it isn't something I have given just a lot of thought to through the years. It just do it because that's what dad did and grandpa and on and on. I, I don't know why I do it. I just do it. No, no, well, that's not a very good, um, that's not good. That probably doesn't, doesn't stand me in good stead that I have really no idea why I observe Sunday versus Saturday. He gave me a, he gave me a couple of pointers and, and so I thought about them. He said, it's the only of the Ten Commandments that it starts out with remember. Every, every, all the rest of them have a different do this or don't do that. But he said, this one says remember, implying that we might forget. I thought that was interesting. He said, if you read in Revelation, there's twice, Revelation 14 and Revelation 22, that it gives a specific blessing to those that keep the commandments of God. In his mind, that would refer to the Ten Commandments. And he said, nowhere in Scripture is there any hint that the New Testament era would have changed, there would have been any type of command or instruction to worship on the, or to observe Sunday versus Saturday. He said the whole thing was instigated under Constantine, and he said Constantine really messed up religion big time. And I, I agree with that. That's true. He, he did. He really played with things, and you know, true Christianity, I, I feel really, um, um, th there was a big blow done during the time of Constantine. We'll leave it there. But he said, it changed there. And he said, it's been messed up ever since. And he said, someday in his mind, in the future, there's going to be persecution of the saints. And he said, mark it down. It'll be the Sabbath keepers that are being persecuted. He said, should that happen, sit up and take notice. And I promised him I would. I said, I will, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. 
But in the meantime, I'm going to go home and figure out if I have a good reason for keeping Sunday versus Saturday. So that is what I plan to uh, talk about this morning, and hopefully, um, hopefully we can bring some clarity to this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to run through the, the Old Testament um, references to the Sabbath day, and we're just going to kind of do a chronological study on how we ended up where we are today in 2018, how that came to be. And do you, I, I'm, I'm hoping that at the end of the day, we can be satisfied that, um, that we are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Okay, so, so much for that. I, I probably have plenty of material here to try to get through, so I'm going to, I'm probably going to be a race with the clock here. So let's turn with me to Genesis 2. This is where the, the first reference is to um, a day of rest. Genesis 2, 1-3, to Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all the work which God had created and made. Okay, so there's a few takeaways here that I would like us to uh, to think about. It, it points out that God rested. Now, did you ever think of the irony of that? W- was God tired? Do you suppose? Do you suppose all that creation and just he was just exhausted, so he rested? Absolutely, he wasn't tired because God can't get tired. It's just not God. But it said that he rested. T- to me, that that points something out. Um, just because you're not tired today doesn't mean that you shouldn't rest. And probably the idea of rest doesn't mean that you should just stay in bed. That's probably not what it means. This is the only thing that I know of in the entire scripture, and and I would be, and, and help me out if I'm wrong on this, but can you think of any other thing that God the Father went to the bother of being an example of it? I can't think of anything. Now, Jesus came to, to earth, and, and you know, he is God, he's part of the, the Trinity, so God was here giving us many examples in that way through Jesus on, on how to live, how to do this, that, and the other thing, but you, you think about the things that were instituted right out of the gate here at creation, the one thing in the entirety of the Bible that it says that God gave us an example was how to rest on the seventh day, all right? Um, Pretty soon we have the institution of marriage. Well, God didn't get married to show us how to do that, but he did rest. So that's interesting. It says that in verse 2 that God blessed and sanctified the seventh day. Why? Because he rested. It was blessed and sanctified because he rested. Implying that if he would not have rested, it wouldn't have been blessed and sanctified. Exodus 20.11 brings out the very same idea. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, because he rested, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. When something is blessed and hallowed of the Lord, would it be going too far to say that it's fairly unique and special? I would say that's fairly safe, a fairly safe assumption. Alright? So this, we have these three verses in Genesis 2 about the Sabbath day. Does it even say the Sabbath day? It just says the seventh. And then we have a long interlude. 
We don't have any reference to the Sabbath day or anybody keeping the Sabbath day or anything. All through the patriarchal times, all that long time, we have to go all the way to Exodus 16 to have the next mention of the Sabbath day. So let's go there. But I will say this, in that long interlude, we do have mentions of periods of seven days. Uh, one of the most familiar is the ark, uh, Noah and his ark there. He had on the seventh, you know, he let out the bird and seven days later he let out the bird again and it was seven days from the time he entered the ark to the Lord shut the, the door and so on. And we do have a, um, a reference to the people of Israel resting in Egypt in the first chapter of Exodus. And some commentators um, think that perhaps that, uh, that, that resting period that's talked about in chapter 1 of, of Exodus was perhaps the children of Israel resting on the seventh day. And it could be, but it doesn't say that specifically. To get to the next mention, we have to go to Exodus 16 and verse 22. And this is the this is the time whenever manna is coming and um, to feed the people. And it says it came to pass that on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for one man. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said to them, "This is that which the Lord has said. Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake that which you will bake today, and see that which you will seethe, and that which remaineth over lay up for you to be kept until morning." I'm going to just stop reading there. But it seems like this was a new way of doing things. That instruction in verse 23 almost would imply that up to this time, they didn't prepare on Friday for Saturday. This was new instruction. Now, you go out and you gather twice as much on Friday, so you you don't have to go out and do it on Saturday. Because I tell you what, it's not going to fall on Saturday. You know that ahead of time, so get twice as much. Now, worms won't get in it. Everything's going to be fine. However... um, as these people were always doing, there were some that went out the next day, and they they went out to look for manna. And um, how does it say it? Um, and the Lord said unto Moses, How long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? See that for the Lord hath given you the Sabbath, therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide ye every man in his place, and let man, let not let no man go out on his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. It, it is interesting here that the people were only reprimanded for their breaking of the Sabbath. They weren't stoned to death, at least at this point. And it is interesting that Moses did not explain to them what the Sabbath day was. He didn't say, now on the seventh, tomorrow, Saturday, you know, now this is going to be a new thing. We're going to rest in this and that. It seemed like that part of it he didn't have to explain. But he did say, I don't want you to go out and gather this bread. Anyway, the instructions of the people were they were supposed to stay in their place and rest. So if you go to the next mention, is Exodus 20 and verses 8 to 11. And this is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy, six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. In it thou shalt do, thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor the stranger that is within thy gate. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. What I want to point out here is that, notice verse 10. God said, I don't want anyone working on the Sabbath day. I don't care if it's you or your wife or your children or your servants or your cattle. And he just goes right down the list because he knew human nature well enough to know that if there was a loophole, they would find it. Had he left out maidservants, you bet the maidservants would have been in the field. Had he left out cattle, they would have trained them horses to plow themselves. That's just the way human nature is. But God covered every loophole. He said, your dog, your cat, well, he didn't say that. But everything rests on the seventh day. Everything. And he gives the reason, and he points way back to creation. He said, because God did that. He said, he worked six days. Well, he didn't say he worked. But he, he created He created the earth in six days and he rested one. So that's why you should do it. All right, let's turn to Exodus 31. This is the next mention in verse uh, 12 to 18. The Lord said to Moses, Speak thou unto... Also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbath ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that does sanctify you. Ye shall keep my Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defileth it shall surely be put to death, for whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh of the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore, the children of Israel kept, shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon the Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stones, written with the finger of God. Okay, so what I want to point out here that becomes significant here, another reason God gives for keeping the Sabbath, he said it's a sign. He said your neighbors, your heathen neighbors, aren't going to keep the Sabbath day, but you are, and the reason you are is because it is a sign of the covenant between you and me. Verse 18 mentions that, how's that go again? The Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Now, isn't that interesting that somehow God was refreshed through this resting that took place on the seventh day? This is the first time that a sentence of death is pronounced upon the the violator. And it is also interesting that this discussion comes right after the first 11 verses where God is giving instruction on how to build a tabernacle. So he gives this instruction, and then he stops and he gives this big pronouncement on the Sabbath about how to observe the Sabbath, and then um, we go on for there. I believe the reason this this instruction on the Sabbath is interwoven here with this instructions on building the tabernacle is because God wants to make sure that these people know that even in this holy duty of building my tabernacle, which seems to be a wonderful holy thing, I want you folks to take the Sabbath off. Even that you don't do on the Sabbath day. Chapter 34 and verse 21, we have the next um, reference to it. Six days 
thou shalt work. But on the seventh day thou shalt rest. In earing time and in harvest thou shalt rest. So here God's saying no exceptions. I don't care if you're building a tabernacle. I don't care if the plowing needs to be done. I don't care if the harvest is ripe. You rest. There are no exceptions here. Knowing human nature and his, again, his propensity to look for the loophole and the excuses. I believe God is just, he's plugging every one of those. He goes, you shouldn't do that. Let's go to chapter 35 and verses uh, 1 to 3. Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said unto them, These are the words which the Lord hath commanded, that ye should do them. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh there shall, there shall be to you a holy day, a Sabbath of rest unto the Lord. Whosoever doeth work therein shall be put to death. Ye shall kindle no fire throughout your habitations on the Sabbath day. Okay, again, right after this, he gives further instruction on um, tabernacle duties and, and that sort of thing. But he starts it out with six days you're going you're gonna to work, on the seventh you're going to rest. Again, I think that's interesting how that, how that uh, fits together. Here we have this thing about not kindling a fire. And devout Jews, uh, at least in quasi-recent times, will not light a fire on the Sabbath day. And that goes back quite some time. It goes back to probably Christ's time at least. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, question in, in historians' minds as to what that really meant. Did that mean a fire like you would... Um, you would kindle a fire to like um, forge metal and that sort of thing. Was it a fire of work? Or even if, if it's cold outside, we can't light a fire just to keep warm. There's some thought that perhaps God was referring to just like fires for, for work and that sort of thing. But be that as it may, um, we do have that particular uh, instruction. Now I'm going to refer real quickly to the to the rest of the... Uh, and this is not totally inclusive, but I want to refer to a few other Sabbath references in Leviticus. In Leviticus 19.1, the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation of the children of Israel, and say, Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Ye shall fear every man his mother, his father, and keep my Sabbaths, for I am the Lord your God. In this chapter and chapters following, we have more instruction on what a Sabbath was. There was Sabbath as a day a week. There was Sabbaths as in the seventh year. There was Sabbaths as in the year of Jubilee. There was Sabbaths during certain feasts. The Sabbath ended up being a much broader term than just one day a week. There was other Sabbaths that the Lord wished for them to to um, observe. In Leviticus 19.30 and 26.2, there's an interesting uh, thought. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. And that's said in two different chapters there. And I, and I see an interesting link there between the sanctuary and the Sabbath. I think there is a, at least a, a suggestion that people showed up at the sanctuary on the Sabbath day. A place of collective worship. Leviticus 23.3 Six days ye shall work, but on the Sabbath is a day of rest, a holy convocation, or in our terms we would say a sacred assembly. Ye shall do no work therein, it is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. 
The Sabbath is unique in its um, in its frequency and its requirements. All the other feasts and holy convocations that is talked about here in uh, Leviticus 23, it's primarily the males that needed to show up at Jerusalem three times a year for the different feasts. But this one, this holy convocation, it included male and female all through the, the territory of Israel. It didn't matter where you lived. And you didn't have to travel to Jerusalem to observe it. You just had to stay in your house and rest. In Numbers 15, there was a man that was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And so they came to Moses and they said, what do we do with this guy? And Moses said, well, handcuff him and we'll go find out. So he asked the Lord and the Lord said, stone him. Now can you imagine? That seems like an awful uh, sentence for somebody that was just out gathering a few twigs on the Sabbath day. But that is how seriously God looked upon the, the breaking of the Sabbath. Um, and God made a statement, and it was a clear statement, that that kind of, um, of uh, activity was not at all acceptable. Deuteronomy 5.15, there's yet another reason given for the Sabbath. And remember that thou was a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out hence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore, the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath. All right, so there's yet another reason. It's a time to sit in your tent and reflect on where you were at one point. At one point, you were a prisoner in Egypt. Now you aren't anymore. And it, it, you, you would do yourselves well to sit in your tents and think about that once a week. That's basically what God's saying. And why is God saying that? Is because we forget. We just forget. And that was such a mighty deliverance. And if the if they would have probably followed that uh, more closely, they probably wouldn't have fell into idolatry as quickly as they did through the through the generations. They probably weren't thinking about their deliverance from Egypt enough. Another scripture that pertains to gives us a little hint on what might have been done in the Israelite nation through the times of the kings and so on on the Sabbath day. If you recall from me in 2 Kings 4, there was this Shunammite woman that had a son that was promised to her. She had the son. The son gets sick and he dies. And the woman said to her husband, he said, send one of the servants over to Elijah, I believe it was, and because he needs, he needs to come. And the husband says, well, why do you want to go talk to Elijah? He said, it is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. Now, it's interesting that he said that. It would imply that in the realms of, of Israel during those days, it was not uncommon to on the Sabbath day, perhaps go listen to a prophet speak, perhaps, or go consult with them or hang out with them. I'm not sure, but somehow, you know, get in contact with a prophet and, you know, um, speak with them or whatever. And the husband's saying, why do you want to go? It's not the Sabbath day. What's up? Anyway, the story is longer than that, but that's what I want to bring out. It gives the implication that there is at least some of that kind of activity. So how well did the Jews through their time keep the Sabbath day? I'm going to read you three portions of Scripture that indicate very well how this was handled through the, through, through the generations there from, say, like the judges to the, uh, to the time of the captivity. Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah says this, and this is from the Lord. It says, Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do you any work, but hallow ye the Sabbath day, as I commanded your fathers. 
But ye obeyed not, neither inclined your ear, but made your neck stiff, and would not hear or receive instruction. Ezekiel 20 has another thought. Moreover also I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign. Now remember, we talked about that, how this Sabbath day was a sign, a covenant, between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness, and walk not in my statues, and despise my judgments, which, if a man do, he shall even live in them. In my Sabbaths they greatly polluted. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness, and consume them. Here's the perspective of, of uh, God, uh, speaking to the prophet Isaiah, and he says it this way. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and Sabbaths, I'm sorry, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. They are a trouble to me. I am weary to bear them. Wherefore, the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth and do, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by precept of man. You get the picture. They were doing the right things, but their heart was so far removed from it that the Lord said, I hate it. I hate to even see you show up on the Sabbath day because your heart's so far away from it, it doesn't honor me anyway. It loathes. I just loathe it. My soul hates it. It's a trouble to me. That's pretty strong language. Amos 8. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances of the seed? Again, there's a lot to be said here, but I'm just going to pick out the reference to the Sabbath. He goes, you sit around on a Sabbath day and you just can't wait till it stops. So you can get out there and you can sell your grain. And not only that, you, you gyp the people while you're doing it. He said, I hate it. I just absolutely despise it. If you take this set of verses, you quickly get the picture of how the Sabbath was observed. Not well. Not very well at all. So... How about the post-exile times? So, you, you know the picture. Fast forward, the Babylonian king comes, captures the, the people of Judah. They're in Babylon for 70 years. It is interesting to me that part of the reason God gives for that captivity was the fact that they did not observe their Sabbaths. Second Chronicles 36.21 This captivity came to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah which was, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. It, to my knowledge, I do not know that the children of Israel ever practiced or, or observed a, a sabbatical year. That seventh year of rest, I do not know that they ever observed that. And God says, you will be kept in captivity until the land has enjoyed all those Sabbaths that you were unwilling to observe. And that's exactly what happened. For 70 years, they're in captivity until that was fulfilled. So they come back from captivity, and the books of Ezra and Nehemiah give us a glimpse of 
some of those early years back from captivity. And, and they're, they're books of a mixed review, really. In Nehemiah 10, and the setting here was um, that the people were making a covenant. Yes, sir, they were making a covenant. It gives the names of these people and they're signing papers. And yes, sir, they're going to keep the, they're going to keep God's covenant. And here's how it reads in verse 29. They clave to their brothers, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, and to observe and do all the commandments and his judgments and statutes. And if the people of the land, and that meant their neighbors around them, bring ware or victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. So you get that? They're saying, this will not happen again. You come and tempt us to buy your stuff, we're not buying it. Every seven years, we're taking a sabbatical. We're not going to repeat this. All right. So that's the, that's the curse and the oath that they, that they came under. But if you go three chapters later in, Je- in Nehemiah, Nehemiah witnesses, well, let's just turn to that. It's a, it's a very interesting little uh, piece of history here. Jeremiah 13, verse 15. It says, In those days I, in those days saw I in Judah some treading wine on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses also as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and I testified against them in the day wherein I, they sold victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein, and brought fish and all manner of ware, and sold on the Sabbath day unto the children of Judah and Jerusalem. And I contended with the nobles of Judah and said, What evil thing is this that you do and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon the city? And yet, and yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates were shut and charged that they should no more be opened till after the Sabbath. Some of my servants said I at the gate that there should be no burden brought in on the Sabbath day. So the merchants and the sellers of all kind of ware lodged within Jerusalem once or twice. Then I testified against them and said to them, why lied ye about the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Even from that time forth, they came no more on the Sabbath day. Three chapters later, they're working, they're buying, they're selling, and I'm not sure what kind of time elapsed here, but it goes to show how forgetful and how how um, influenced the people were by the community they lived in, really. And Nehemiah, he had got him all in a lather, and he said, you guys show up one, one more time, and I'm going to lay hands on you. I don't know what he was going to do, but he was going to spank them. They, they were not getting away with that. And they, they took note, and they said, we're, you know, we're not coming back. And um, I, really, I really appreciate Nehemiah's, um, his, um, I don't know, his vim and vigor. I mean, he was not going to let this thing happen. And he, he gave a good scolding to the, to the people of Israel, and, and he, he did what it took to get that thing straightened out. So from, from the time in Nehemiah through Jesus' day was a, is a time period that we do not have biblical record of what all took place. But there's enough secular uh, writings that we get a, we get a real uh, sense of what happened. And by the time we open the book of Matthew and we see how the Sabbath was observed, we certainly can see that it was well observed, but 
in a very wrong way. Again, it seemed like they had fallen into a ditch that they shouldn't have fall, fell into. The main problem was that, you know, Nehemiah, you remember how he gave them the scolding. And so the people through that period said, okay, let's not let this happen. Let's start to define what we can and what we can't do on the Sabbath day so that people, you know, know what they can and can't do. So through that period, they came up with 39 things that you shouldn't do. And then they had sub-points to the 39 things to further define that. And it became a very cumbersome, unbelievable book of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath day. And it got ridiculous. So your house is burning down. Okay, you can't bear a burden on the Sabbath day, so you can't go tearing in your house. Get your clothes, take them out, because that's bearing burden. But what you can do is you can go in and you can put on as many clothes as possible and wear them out. Okay, because that's not bearing burden. That's the kind of ridiculousness we got into. A biblical example is going through the fields, plucking ears of, well, whatever it was, grain, the disciples there, to, to eat it. You know, we're just reaching out. We could use a little grain. We reach out. We eat it. And the people say, or the, the Pharisees say, you're threshing. You're, you're harvesting. You can't do that on the Sabbath day. That's the kind of ridiculous stuff we get into. Another, another thing that developed during that period was synagogue worship. Prior to the, prior to the exile, we have no record of worshiping in a synagogue. Um, biblical record of it. But once we get into the New Testament, we have this synagogue, this reference to the synagogue. And what happened during that time is during exile, the people had no temple, of course, so they began to come together in little enclaves on the Sabbath day and read the law and worship, whatever, in these little geographical areas. And when they came back from exile, even though they rebuilt the temple, that practice continued. On the Sabbath day, if you lived in Dan, you know, and you weren't going to run all the way to Jerusalem every Sabbath day, so you had your synagogue up there in, in Galilee or whatever, and you worshipped. And Jesus participated in that, and we never have a condemnation of that, necessarily. The run-ins that Jesus had with the Pharisees, all through the Gospels, boiled down to one thing. The, the Pharisees had gotten to a nitpicky mode about what could and could not be done on the Sabbath day, completely seemingly completely forgot about the principle of the Sabbath. And so when Jesus goes to restore that principle, they completely lost it. You know, suddenly healing is work and this kind of thing. You, you know that. You get the picture. Jesus had come to show us the true meaning and observance of Sabbath. And remember, Jesus never came to destroy the law but to fulfill it. Jesus was showing how to fulfill that law in a godly way. So now I let's address this question, which is what really got me onto this, this particular subject. So how did the switch come from Saturday to Sunday? What, um, what, what took place that in the Old Testament we have Saturday, now we have Sunday? Well, there's a few things that, that are true. There is ample record that Jesus and the apostles and the church of the New Testament did indeed worship on the Sabbath day. Don't, don't, let's not even dispute that. There's just enough evidence that that happened that we're silly to try to say that that didn't happen. It happened. It, it certainly did. But there is also a record 
New Testament record, namely in Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 16, and Revelation 1, that there was a unique um, thing that happened on the first day of the week. It was it, it, had, it had come to be called the Lord's Day. And in Acts, in Acts 20, it talks about how on the first day of the week that the disciples came together and broke bread on the Lord's Day. And Paul preached to them on the Lord's Day. And it said he preached about midnight. So he got long-winded even on the Lord's Day, which would indicate that they didn't do much else on the Lord's Day. Okay? 1 Corinthians 16, we have the instruction that when you come together on the first day of the week, that's the time to take up your offering. Okay, so we have that little instruction, which is a little tidbit that there's something interesting happening on the first day of the week. And then in Revelation 1, um, John goes to the bother to say, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which would, which would again maybe indicate that this was a special time. It was a time of communion with God, and it was the Lord's day, and he points that out. It is also interesting, I think we should note, that nowhere are we commanded necessarily that we should meet on Sunday or Saturday. We just have these examples. That's all we have in the scripture. We have examples. Nowhere can can be found, thou shalt worship God on the Sabbath or thou shalt on Sunday. It's not there. There is one interesting scripture that you can just about use. You can proof text it and take it out and use it just about any way you want. And that's the one in Colossians 2.16. And, and many people do use this one to defend their argument. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, in drink, in respect of an holy day, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. And they just pick that out and do with, do with it what they want to. We tend to take it out and say, there you go. There it says it. Um, Sabbath day, no, nah, no. Nah. Don't, don't let anybody judge you concerning you're not worshiping on the Sabbath day. I would suggest that we have to back up and look much I take a much more broad uh, look at that chapter. What Paul is telling the, the people of Colossians is, I don't want you to get bound in this thing of asceticism again, where we check off the boxes and we observe these feasts and do these things, and then we say, ah, we're good. He said, that's not where I want you to go. He was in no way trying to bring closure to the Sabbath principle that was established in creation. I just do not gather that that is the context of that particular chapter. Or that somehow we can do what we please on the Sabbath day and, and nobody can judge us for that. It is human nature, again, I would suggest, to run to the periphery on any issue. And this is one of those verses that I think people tend to run to the periphery with. It is true that the Christian Jews did keep the Sabbath day in Jerusalem until the destruction of Jerusalem. That has been historically documented. And just like circumcision and some of the other things that they were so used to, that died very hard. However, very early on, we have secular writing that would indicate that there was a shift during these times. And I'm going to read to you four quotes from what we call the early church fathers, quote, quote, that reference Sunday worship. So there's this man by the name of Dionysus who writes a letter from Rome, from Corinth to Rome, and he just puts this in his letter. He said, Today we kept the Lord's day and we read your letter. Ignatius in 114 says this, We no longer keep the Sabbath, but we keep holy the Lord's day. Justin Martyr in 115 says this, 
On a day called Sunday, we have our common assembly in which the apostles or writings of the prophet are read. A collection is taken for widows and orphans. Communion is celebrated because it is the day which Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And Tertullian wrote this about this about Sunday. He goes, It is our Christian duty to abstain from secular care and labor on Sunday, lest we give place to the devil. So I'm just going to leave that. Now, this is not scripture, but these people, many of these people, would have had contact with the apostles. Okay? So the apostles would have known this this stuff was happening. And we get nowhere that there was a a reprimand or that there was something wrong with, with what they were doing. Nowhere do we get that that idea. So how about my friend's um, thought about Constantine and him changing this and him being the guy that, that got us all messed up? What, what, what about that? So the research that I came up with is that indeed in 321 A.D., Constantine did write an edict concerning Sunday, and it goes like this. On the day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in cities rest, and let them all all workshops be closed. In the country, however, persons engaged in agriculture may freely and lawfully continue their pursuits, because it often happens that on another day it is not suitable for grain sowing or vine planting unless by neglecting the proper moment of such operations, the bounty of heaven should be lost. So that's his edict. Now I will say this, really what Constantine did was he made into law what was already the, the um, practice of Christians to that point. Sabbatarians would make the argument that he made it Sunday because Sunday was the day that the Romans worshipped their sun god, and to make it easy, to make that transition easy from paganism to Christianity, we're just going to make Sunday the day so that it doesn't mess with society. Did Constantine have that in mind? Very possibly. I don't know Constantine's mind necessarily. I do know Constantine did really mess with religion and think he really messed things up. So he possibly could have thought that, perhaps. But as far as I can tell, up to that time, that was the practice. So all he was doing was simply putting into his law, what was already being practiced by Christians um, to date. It is interesting how, though, that he made that little exception there. He goes, hey, you know what? Them farmers there, they might, they might have to, they may not be able to observe it because you know, there's things to do and you sure hate to lose the crop. I think that's interesting how he, he snuck that in there and, and I don't really have any comment to that beyond that. So the question comes down to us. What about us? What does God expect of us on His day, on the Lord's day, as it's been come to know? What, 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 what are we to make of this? I mean, so I'm going to give you some thoughts here that I think help us to think through this, hopefully, clearly. I think it is fair to say that the creation principle of rest one day of week seems to be something that spans times and generations. I, I really think that, I think if, you, if you're honest about it, and you look at Scripture, you look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, you look at the apostolic time, you look at time right up till now, you will see that the people of God have, has, have always observed a day a week. I, I think we can conclude that very safely. 
So what about this argument that we don't want to be bound by the law, we live under grace, and to religiously abstain from work, etc., on the Lord's Day, is really, that's legalistic, it's, it's being bound by the law, it's, it's really not what God would have us to do. I guess I would say this to that. Remember this, Jesus said, and I alluded to this before, he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. So, you remember how that goes. He goes, in the law it says you're not to kill, but I say to you, you're not supposed to hate. In the law it says you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say to you, you should not lust. All the other Ten Commandments, Jesus strengthens. It appears, when you look at the Gospels, that he was loosening the Sabbath, but all he was doing was restoring the true meaning of Sabbath. He came to strengthen that one as well. But he said, here's how we're going to do that. It's going to look different than legalistic abstinence from work or whatever. But does that mean we shouldn't? I would say that we shouldn't observe it legalistically. I would say that our practices of cessation for work or the gathering of the assembly of the saints or abstaining from a business, that's not done because we want to ascribe to legalism. It's done because we've had a heart change. And it's not, it's not bondage to us. We want to do it. Not, I think that, I think that would be the true meaning of Sabbath. You know, God hated the legalistic Jewish observance of Sabbath. They sat around waiting for it to end so they could get right back to work. And He longed for a day when people's hearts would willingly and gladly do his bidding. And that is what the New Testament should reflect. A people that gladly observe the Lord's Day because they want to. They want to show their love for God. During the Reformation times, we have a man by the name of John Calvin that um, he was going to restore... He had a unique way of, of reforming. In Geneva there, he had a set of rigorous laws. And if you did not follow those laws, I mean, it was carried out with execution. And Sunday observance was one of those things. He had a very rigorous um, stipulation. It was quite, it was like Old Testament law, really, of what a person could and could not do on, the, on, the, on Sunday. He observed Sunday, not necessarily the Sabbath. John Calvin influenced, I should say, the Puritan church in England was very influenced by John Calvin. They were basically Calvinists in England that were there to purify the Church of England. They were very, um, very influenced by Calvin. And thus, because of that, they also had a very rigorous uh, Sunday sabbatical uh, morality. And if you would read the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I'm not going to do that, you would see what that is. So what happens? The Puritans come over to the new country. They, they settle up there in the New England states. And that very rigorous Sabbath observation on Sunday becomes the norm. And it's, called, and it, it, it's brought down to our day through, the, through our, the, the, um, the time here in the United States. It was called the, the Sabbath Blue Laws. This you can, this you cannot do on the Sabbath day, on, on Sunday. The revivalist Jonathan Edwards, he vigorously promoted uh, Sunday observation. 
And the pinnacle probably was in 1888, the formation of the American Sabbath Union, which later changed its day, its name to the Lord's Day Alliance, which exists to this day. And for the sole reason of how to exactly properly observe the Lord's Day. And it's an interesting read. I, I would encourage you to look that up and just read about it. It's very interesting. So what happened? Because of those blue laws, we had, we had things that for many years were not, hap- did not happen on Sunday. Liquor sales is one that, well, that's, that's been relaxed in Minnesota now, but many states would not allow the sale of liquor. Car dealerships could not be open. Uh, for many years, um, professional sports could not be played on Sunday. And this was all an attempt by Protestant moralists to keep Sunday the Lord's Day. But what has happened as America has secularized, that, that observance of the Lord's Day has been largely lost. And the church has not been very far behind. And I would even say that the Mennonite church um, has been influenced by, by some of this as well. So I would like to conclude with five things, five points of how we can process this information and just things that I want you to take home and think about. I think we can conclude that if we're honest that God would still have his people observe a regular day of rest. And when I say regular, I don't mean, hey, i got to make hay on Sunday so I'll rest Tuesday. I think it should be a regular day of rest. God rested on the seventh day. And I don't think that principle has changed. I get no, no scriptural indication that that has changed. Historical precedent would strongly indicate that the early church had a pattern of gathering for worship on Sunday, cessation from labor, and eschewing business pursuits. I would also say right on this that I do not intend to get really um, dogmatic about whether it's Saturday or Sunday. I think, I think that historical precedent would show that Orthodox Christianity has practiced the Lord's Day on Sunday for many, 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 many years. And I get no indication that the Lord condemns that. However, there are many more things I'm concerned about than whether it's Saturday or Sunday. So I don't really intend on going back to my accountant and getting into a long, scrappy argument about Saturday versus Sunday. That's just where I'm at with it. If you, if you feel I'm in error there, I would be, I'd be happy to uh, discuss that with you. All right, number two, the other point I'd like you to think about. Don't underestimate how seriously we are affected by the culture around us. I contend, I just find it interesting to read what people would and wouldn't do on the sat on Sunday through, say, in the last 150 years. Look at what my ancestors would and wouldn't do on Sunday through the last 150 years. And notice how closely they kind of go together. As, as the world around us sort of poo-poo Sunday, we sort of relax things too. Right, wrong, or otherwise, I think our culture has influenced our observation of Sunday far more than we realize. And I would even say some of the taboos that 100, 150 years ago that we had in our churches were largely because of the culture, the Protestant moralists around us. Not not necessarily was it right or wrong, but we were very influenced by our society. Never, ever measure yourself by the culture. Never do that. You're going to mess up every stinking time. Don't do it. We can't do that. And I think maybe we've done that a little too much with um, with the Lord's Day, perhaps. 
Number three, let's always attempt to think clearly on these subjects. Again, I come back to this thing that it seems like we always run the, to, to the periphery on any given subject. I don't know why we're more comfortable there. But we either fall into a very legalistic Sabbath uh, regulation and observance, or we go into this slippery grace covers everything paradigm. We're not under law. We can do what we want, and a Sabbath means nothing. It's, it seems like that's the way we tend to separate ourselves. And if we're totally honest, I think there are going to be maybe differences in how maybe we personally observe Sabbath, if you will. And I think there's probably some room for that. And I think we always need to realize that there is legitimate exceptions to every rule. I'm going to give you one quick illustration. So typically we don't buy and sell on Sunday just because that's kind of been a, that's been a, a very, a precedent that's been around for a long time going back to Nehemiah, really. However, let's say that I go to somebody's place two hours away and it happens to be Sunday and they happen to have um, a jar of honey there that I would like to buy, say. And it's ten bucks. Would it be wrong for me, for them to give me the honey and me to give them the ten bucks? Now, I'm going to go way out on a limb here and I'm going to say the answer is no. I'm going to call that incidental occasion. We're not, we didn't go there specifically to buy the honey. We went there to visit the people. They happen to have honey. We happen to have ten bucks. Do it and go on. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm out on a limb here. Maybe you disagree with me. And if you do, I'd be willing to discuss it with you. But that's where I'm at. And the reason I'm there is because I happen to see personally as a child, as about a 10 or 12 year old, an incident where this very thing happened. It wasn't honey that time, it was something else. But this person was at a person's place and they wanted the thing. But it was Sunday. Well, what do we do? We can't, we can't change money on Sunday. So the person gave the other person the thing that was wanted and the person that received it went with the $10 and put it behind the sugar canister and the guy picked it up on Monday. I witnessed that. To me, that's legalistic Sabbath observance. Now, I don't laugh real hard at that because truly I do believe that, that those two people that were involved in that were indeed, had, um, had good intentions. Okay, they, they realized that there is a slope here that we could fall down and eventually you could be out on the roadside selling honey. I get that. So, I hope you understand, I'm not promoting that we all go out here and, you know, use, you know, the churchyard as a barter exchange, but I think you understand what I'm getting at. Okay, number four. Remember that God is looking for people who love Him and do what they do out of a heart of gratitude and thankfulness, okay? They don't see Sunday observance as a hindrance or a burden at all. They see it as a day of worship and refreshment and a day to do good and focus on God. I'll dare say that generally, if you search your heart and you find yourself pining, that you can't do something on Sunday, say, you can't do this or that, I dare say that it's carnality to the absolute core in your heart. Do I dare give another example? Bear with me, I know I'm over time. I know of a, of a group of people, and here's, here is where they have, and I'm sorry to say it, but here's where they have gone. Because farmers are allowed to milk cows, and it takes them approximately two or three hours a day, the folks that have the wood shops can go out two or three hours a day and work in the wood shops. That way everything's fair. That, again, is carnality 
to the that is not being fair. That's that as I would say that is driven totally by carnality. That is that is my take on that. If again, if you disagree with me, I'd be happy to discuss that with you. I will say this too. Never forget the importance of the gathering of the saints. That, that's been a that has been a that has been the way Christians have observed Sunday for millennia. The saints have gathered on the day of the Lord. And if there's one place I would say that we might be slipping a little bit, it would be the importance of that. I think we are much more inclined not to see that as important today as we would have been, say, even when I was a child. I would dare say that. Lastly, never underestimate the testimony of Sunday observance to a godly world. And now you're saying, brother, you are really getting legalistic now. Bear with me here, but there are many ways we testify to the, to, uh, to the world. Many ways. I'm just saying the observance of Sunday is one of those ways. I personally know my neighbors would be disappointed in me if I went out this afternoon. And by the way, I could. i got hay laying at home that's ready to bail. I could go out and bail that this afternoon, and I have a man that would be happy to do that for me. And in fact, I had that happen to me a few years ago. There was rain called for on Monday. And my neighbor said, you going to bail that hay today? And I said, I'm not. He said, I didn't know if you'd make exception for that, you know, because of the forecast. And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't make exception for that. Now, again, you could say, well, that's just legalistic. And if you feel that is, then be my guest. I say it is a testimony that, you know what, God is number one in my heart. And if that is his hay out there, and if he wants that hay to get rained on, he can just go ahead and do that. We'll get that hay made on Tuesday or Wednesday. That's my thought on it. I really believe that our testimony is marred whenever we just jolly well follow the culture and do what we want on the Lord's Day. Well, I hope you've been inspired. I hope you're not disappointed in me. Maybe I've tipped my hand a little too far this morning. I'm not sure. But truly, this is the day that the Lord has made, and we should rejoice and be glad in it.